God, we accept uh, your word this morning, the Bible, as uh, scripture, as your word to us, your people. And we ask that you would use it to help us understand who you are better and help us to understand better what it means to uh, live in obedience to you and to your son. So I pray that you would take the words of scripture and help us to receive them as your word with great joy. We pray this in the name of Jesus and asking for the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, as those of you who know us uh, know, my wife and I are uh, pretty quiet, uh, organized people. So if you uh, saw the apartment we lived in uh, when we were first married, uh, you would have uh, noticed that it was characterized by strict order. We like to have a place for everything, and we like it when everything is in the proper place. Now, we have three kids, and actually, we are expecting a fourth kid uh, this summer. So, uh, as, uh, thank you, I had to wait for my wife to be downstairs before I can say that she gets embarrassed about things like that, but as the uh, comedian Jim Gaffigan says, if you want to know what it's like to have uh, four kids, imagine that you're drowning. And then someone hands you a baby. So we're looking forward to that. That'll be fun. Uh, But having kids has transformed our home from a neat and ordered environment into a minefield of toys and loud, busy little people running everywhere. Uh, This is actually less bad than the scene that I walked into uh, this past week as I came home from work. This is someone's kids who are much less uh, energetic and uh, persevering than our children are. Just our two little ones managed to take uh, take out literally every single toys of these giant toy bins, and they dumped every single one of them off, and all of the books that they could get their hands on, all of them were just covering the floor of our family room. And what really got me is that they weren't even playing with them. There was no one in the room, and yet all of them were out, despite my very reasoned suggestions in the past that when you're done playing with one toy, you could probably put it away before getting out the next toy. It seems very reasonable to me, but it just doesn't happen in our home. The the chaos is really epitomized for me, though, in our weekly uh, FaceTime calls with my parents. Uh, For those of you who don't know, FaceTime is this program where you can have video calls uh, with um, with, your, uh, with other people around the world uh, on your, tel- uh, your uh, telephone or your, your smartphone. What is it called? I don't even know. On your phones, on your tablets, on your computers. Someone set this up for me, right? <laughs> Clearly. Uh, but as a good son, I feel like it's my duty to keep in contact with my parents since they're far away. And so we do these FaceTime calls every, uh, every Sunday night. So every Sunday night, I, I kind of brace myself as I dutifully get out the iPad and I bring it over and I push the button for FaceTime, and I push the button for my parents' number, and as soon as the ringing starts, the kids just clamor around me because they know what this means. And, and for the next uh, as long, uh, half hour to an hour, as long as I can put up with it, they're just clamoring for the attention of their grandparents. They're, they're using my lap as a springboard to get as close as they can to the camera to see their face on there. And they're, they're shouting out stories and instructions to my parents, and they're just whizzing back and forth. And of course, the whole time my parents are in their nice, calm, quiet environment and just watching with these delighted smiles on their faces as our home is this chaotic circus of little people moving and screaming and talking all over the place. 
Now, of course, my parents love this, uh, but it's almost impossible for us to have any kind of a conversation. So if we ever want to talk, we're going to have to call uh, them up later in the evening and say, okay, well, this is what I wanted to share from this week and that kind of thing. Because every time there's a little break in the, the action so we can actually ask a question or start to, to say something, immediately the kids are back in on it showing another toy right up close to the screen or another story that they want to tell or something else. Now, here's my question. What if church services were like that? Kind of a free-for-all where anyone could pop up at any point and, and grab a microphone and just the, or shout above the din and just the loudest voice is the one that kind of uh, wins the most attention uh, for the day. Wouldn't that be kind of fun? Well, last week we considered uh, what it would be like to be in a gathered worship service where you didn't understand any of the words that were being said. Well, this week we consider what it would be like if there was no order and if the whole service were just uh, categorized by, uh, categorized by uh, chaos and by everyone just uh, kind of clamoring for uh, the microphone, uh, so to speak. Uh, we're moving toward the end of our series in the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, the gospel for a messy church, and, and we're uh, continuing in chapter 14 here, where Paul's instructions for the gathered worship uh, of the church. And he's going to give them more instructions and specific directives now on what they should do when they gather uh, together to worship. Now, if you look at these chapters, it's pretty clear that this church had some significant problems, and so Paul is going to give them some concrete instructions for what they should do together. Uh, the text is 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 through 40. Uh, I ask you to turn there if you haven't already done that. Uh, if you don't have a, a Bible, you can borrow one from the pew rack. You can even take it home if you want. Uh, it's found on page 1138 of the pew Bibles. It's 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 14, beginning in verse 26. Uh, when Paul thinks about the gathered worship of the church, when he writes about that, what he wants to happen is for everyone to be strengthened and encouraged and built up when the church gathers together. And clearly that is not happening at this church in Corinth. So he's going to give three specific uh, correctives for them. We're going to look at the correctives and then consider uh, how we can apply that uh, in our day. So let's look at these three correctives from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. The first corrective that he gives is in their use of speaking in tongues. Uh, before he gets into the uh, corrective in, in particular, he lays out the underlying principle that he's going to be arguing for here. Look at verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. This is the big concern of this whole chapter. Everything done so that the church would be built up. God has gifted each person in the church with abilities and, and passions, and He has empowered them by His own Spirit to be able to use these gifts for the good of everyone uh, who, who comes. So when we come to church, we come ready to participate, not as an audience member, not uh, to sort of be entertained, not to feel a sense of obligation, but to come and to participate to come and to build up the people around us. We come with a heart to encourage the whole church. Now, if that's going to happen at Corinth, they have to change some things. He starts with some changes that have to happen with speaking in tongues. Look at verses 27 and 28. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church, and speak to himself and to God. 
Speaking in tongues means being empowered by God to be able to speak in a language that you wouldn't ordinarily know. And as we saw last week, Paul is suggesting that there can be abuses of this. That's for the benefit of the person who's speaking, but if there's no interpreter, no one else can understand what's being said. So no one else is actually encouraged and built up by speaking tongues in gathered worship without an interpreter. So now he's giving this specific directive. If there is not an interpreter, there shouldn't be any tongues in the church. And even if there is an interpreter, he still regulates how it should be done. First of all, it needs to be in order, one at a time, not people shouting over one another. And it also should be limited in number. Two or maybe three at the most should speak uh, in tongues before the congregation. This always with um, interpretation. Now, the fact that Paul is writing this as a corrective suggests that this is not what things looked like in the church in Corinth. He kind of gives a picture of, of the, chaotic, the chaotic scene in the church here uh, in the passage that we looked at last week. Verse 23 kind of gives you an idea of how this could look. It's a, it's a hypothetical situation of, of if someone who wasn't a follower of Jesus came and saw what they were doing together. It says, if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? In other words, when the, when the church is, is gathering their current practice of speaking in tongues and stuff like that without interpretation, if someone walks into that, it's going to look like they're, they're just insane. They're, they're babbling uh, nonsense words uh, from the perspective of someone just coming in. It's like my kids on FaceTime trying to get attention, except there's a whole bunch more of them all clamming for attention. The Corinthians seem to have been really drawn to the gift of tongues, which is why uh, Paul seems to have to uh, kind of correct their use here. It seemed to be for them almost a test case of, of how powerful or how spiritual or strong uh, a person was. If they spoke in tongues, this seemed to be a great indicator that, that God's Spirit was on them in a, in a special uh, way. So last uh, week we saw in the first half of this chapter that he's correcting that and saying, we don't come to, to look really strong. We don't come to kind of uh, uh, show how godly we are, how spiritual we are by the, the use of our own tongues. We come to use our gifts in service of the whole church. That's the corrective that they need here. And so he's giving them specific commands here. They have to stop what they're doing and bring some order back to this and realize that the bottom line is always building up the whole community. So the first corrective is about speaking in tongues. The second corrective here is about prophecy, starting in verse 29. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should wear carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Now, prophecy is about being empowered by God to speak a word from God to his people at a particular time. And Paul has just spent a bunch of time in the first half of this chapter arguing for how prophecy is more beneficial to the gathered worship of the church than speaking in tongues because it's understandable and its purpose is to edify, to encourage, and to build up. So now he's giving instructions for how that should be done. Two or three should come and to bring a prophecy again one at a time. But there's, uh, even with how uh, beneficial prophecy can be for the church, even this can go poorly. Prophecy isn't to be done in a bombastic kind of way where, where one person uh, kind of monopolizes the whole time. And it's not to be one shouting over another. If, if God gives a message to one person, the person who's speaking needs to give them an opportunity to share that message. 
the goal here is always instruction and encouragement. And notice, too, that this isn't to be accepted uncritically. The church should be weighing what is said. There's a great example of this uh, in uh, the story of the missionary journeys in the book of Acts. Uh, There's a a little synagogue in uh, the town of Berea, and listen to how they respond when Paul and Silas bring the message of Jesus to them. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. See, this is what weighing a prophecy means. It means testing it against the authority of the Bible. See, if what is being said doesn't line up with what the Bible says, then you cannot accept that as a word from God. Because the Bible is the authoritative word of God. It's the test by which we are able to weigh the prophecies. And this is what the church should be doing. It's why as we gather, I I invite you to open your Bibles because you have to see whether or not what I'm saying is true. And if what I'm saying doesn't line up with what Scripture is saying, you have to disregard it. You have to stick with what Scripture is saying. We have a, a strong value on this as a church because this is what we're called to as believers. This is the authoritative word of God for us, and it's the, the means by which we come to understand if a message is true or not. Now, the corrective here is uh, against disorderly, chaotic worship, but it's also against uh, the, the self-absorption of, of those who feel like they have the most important gifts in the church. See, if prophecy is done in the wrong way, it can leave people feeling left out. So let me give you a hockey illustration to try to make the point here. Um, I have played with some very good hockey players, also some very poor hockey players. I'm not a great hockey player, but I've played with some very great hockey players. And I've noticed there's, there's two different kinds of really good hockey player. There's the kind that wants to always make the highlights, and then there's the kind who always wants to set up other people for highlights. So the kind that always wants to make the highlights, they're the ones who they want the puck all the time. And you'll frequently see them trying to go through a whole field of defenders. And they have some great moves often, and they're just, they can sometimes go through a whole crowd before they pass or more likely shoot on the the goal. And it's pretty impressive. But what happens if you're on the team with someone like that? As soon as they get the puck, you just stop skating and you watch. You're not knees bent, ready to catch a pass. You're not flying up the ice. You just kind of stand up and wait. And you're going to watch. And it might be entertaining. You might like the person. You might like being on their team. Maybe you'll win some games. But it's less fun. You're not involved in the action. Contrast that with a player who really loves to set other people up. Now, they might uh, have to go through a few defenders. They might have some great moves. But it's always in service of making a play and setting up a teammate. And what happens if you play with someone like that? As soon as they get the puck, you're flying up the ice because you know they're looking for a pass. You know that if you get open, you get in the right spot, you're going to get a pass and you're going to be able to make a play yourself. It is way more fun to play with a player like that. It's a similar kind of thing here. If prophecy is done in a, in a controlling, uh, monopolizing kind of a way, it can make people feel left out. See, when the church gathers, it's not just about one person using their gifting. We need to find opportunities to involve more people in this. This is the whole church gathered together using our gifts for the building up of the whole community, says the guy with a microphone who's taking up half the time in the service. (laughs) The irony is not lost on me. We'll talk about this. The third corrective here is for women, verses 34 and 35. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. 
Now, I'm guessing that some of you are going to bristle at hearing this, but we have to remember two things. First, this is the Word of God. And second, this is part of a situational corrective. The fact that this is uh, the Word of God means that we don't get to decide whether or not we believe what is said here is true, right? We just said that the Bible is authoritative over us, which means that we sit under its authority. It corrects our thinking, not the other way around. So this is the Word of God, and we have to receive it as such. That this is a situational corrective means that we have to work hard to understand why this is being said and what is being said in context. So what's going on here? This is in the context of correcting specific problems that are going on in the worship of the uh, church in Corinth. So it's, it's likely that Paul has some specific things in mind here. And we also have to realize that in chapter 11, Paul talked about women praying and prophesying in the church. In other words, he's saying that God has gifted some women supernaturally by the power of his spirit to pray and to prophesy. So they're using vocal gifts within the church. So in light of that, the the prohibition here can't be an absolute prohibition. So what is this about? Paul mentions submission in verse 34, and then as a corrective, he offers that women should be asking uh, questions of their own husbands at home. So it, it looks like probably the women here were speaking in a way that would have been considered inappropriate in their context. So, for example, there's evidence in the Greco-Roman world that it would have been considered inappropriate or even scandalous for a married woman to be engaging in a private conversation with uh, someone who was a man who was not her husband, another woman's husband. So you get some idea of the kind of, of context that this was written in. And of course, our culture is much looser on these kind of things, but even with that looser mindset, there are some interactions between uh, married pe- uh, people that are not married, a man and a woman who are married to other people, that we would consider inappropriate. So uh, let me give you an example. A few years ago, uh, someone introduced me to a band called The Civil Wars. And honestly, I really like their music. I think they sound uh, great uh, together. It's a, it's a man and woman duo, and their voices blend well and all those that kind of things. Uh, when I first started listening to them, I assumed that they were a husband and wife, right? It's a man and woman playing together. They, they blend their vocals really well. They, they play together. They have good chemistry on stage. But then I found out they weren't married to each other. In fact, the woman's married to someone else, and they have a, a baby and everything. And, and it really bothered me to find that out because I, I realized that if I was that woman's husband, I would be totally uncomfortable. I would not be okay with the kind of chemistry and relationship that I see between the two of them. There's an intimacy of the, the lyrics of their songs, and there's a, an intimacy and in, in a chemistry and in body language there when they uh, sing together and perform together that just makes me very uncomfortable. It doesn't seem appropriate to me. So I, I, it really distracts me from even being able to listen to their music and enjoy it anymore because I'm so uncomfortable with that relationship. And it looks like that's the kind of thing that, that Paul is addressing here in Corinth. It looks like there, there might have been someone, some women here who were interacting with other men in the church other than their husbands in a way that seemed inappropriate in, in their context. And in addition to that, it's also uh, probable that the women were interacting in a way that was disruptive to the, the order of the services. So as Paul gave directives about speaking in tongues and how that can be disorderly and disruptive, not benefiting the whole congregation, so too he's correcting what's happening with women. It's interesting, if you look at this passage, there's actually three different points where Paul tells a particular group that they need to be quiet. So if there is someone who is um, gifted with speaking in tongues, but there's no interpreter, that person needs to be quiet. If there's someone who's giving a, a prophecy, a word from the Lord, and a word comes to someone else, that first person needs to be quiet to allow space for the other person. And here too, it's women need to be quiet in the church. 
So it looks like uh, what's going on in the church of Corinth is that their worship has been disorderly, it's been chaotic, it's been done in a way that doesn't build everyone up. And Paul is now instructing women that they need to make sure that their conduct in the gathered worship of the church uh, follows this directive to be, as he says in verse 40, fitting and orderly, everything done in an appropriate and orderly kind of manner. And before we look at how the church today can learn from uh, this passage, uh, we need to uh, see how Paul underlines his authority even as he gives these commands. Look at the next couple verses here, starting in verse 36. He says, Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But everything must be done in a fitting and orderly way. Now, Paul uses some pretty strong words here to back up his authority. He, he realizes that he has said some things to this church that will be difficult for them to hear and difficult for them to accept and to put into practice. So he needs to make sure that they know that this isn't just his opinion. This isn't just Paul writing some words about how he thinks that their worship services should look. No, this is a message from God to this church about how they need to correct their behavior. And the same is true for us. We have to accept this as the Word of God and think about how we can apply this. So how do we, how do we uh, learn from a passage uh, like this in our context today? It's important for us to focus on the principles that Paul is building on here. So look at what he says again in verse 26. This is what the church should be looking like. When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so the church may be built up. It's a similar thing that he builds on in verse 40 at the very end, his conclusion. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. And that's the same thing he had repeated earlier in the chapter in verse 12. Since you are eager for the gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. This is the underlying concern for this whole thing. It's that everything be done in a way that honors God and builds up everyone in the community of faith. Now, he gives specific directives for Corinth because they have some specific things that he's aware of that, that need to change. There are big changes that are needed in Corinth, and there are specific areas where they are going wrong. We don't necessarily have the same specifics as them. For example, we have not had an issue uh, with people trying to speak in tongues in a disruptive manner. I don't know of anyone who has the uh, gift of interpretation uh, of tongues in our congregation. Maybe some of you do, uh, but we haven't had that as an issue here, and so that's not a corrective that we really need to focus in on as a church. Uh, likewise, we haven't had a disruptive or inappropriate women uh, being uh, involved in our services. We do have women uh, praying and reading scripture and sharing testimonies of what God has done, but we believe that that fits within the categories of 1 Corinthians 11 and the larger biblical picture of uh, women participating uh, with their gifts uh, within the church. Maybe we do have to deal with um, some bombastic preachers, so we'll talk about that as well. But as we look at uh, the specifics here, it's, it's drawing us back to the principles of what worship should look like in the church. And what we need to look at is the vision that Paul has for the gathered worship of the church. Really, if you look at chapters 12, 13, and 14 of this uh, book, it really gives a great picture of what the church should be. The church is supposed to be special. It's supposed to be a unique organism that's not like any other uh, human organization or human grouping. 
See, these are people who God has called together and has given gifts by His Spirit from a whole diversity of backgrounds, a whole bunch of different uh, contexts and, and socioeconomics and all that stuff, but He has brought them together as one in the church. So for all the diversity of the church, it is a unified entity. And as he says in, in chapter 12 and chapter 13, God has gifted us with, with gifts and abilities, and we are to use those to build up and encourage the people who are around us. The church is to be characterized by a, a deep and abiding love that doesn't stop at anything before it can give good to the other person. So we have that great chapter 13, the use of, of love in the church, and, and it doesn't matter how great we seem uh, gifted-wise and all of that. If we don't have love, we've lost the whole thing. And then in chapter 14, we get into these instructions for worship and the, the clear call that everything must be done so that the church is built up. And the picture that he's painting here is all of us working together for the good of all. And that's the picture that he gives. It's one of participation and it's one of order, all in the service of the good of others. So as we look at the particular church in Corinth, they had participation at least from those who were speaking in tongues, but they didn't have order. So they needed to be reminded that God is a God of order and a God of peace, not a God of disorder. And so they need to bring their services to, to be not a chaotic place, but a place where God can be honored and everyone can be built up. We have lots of order, or we tend to have lots of order, but we struggle more with the participation side, right? We need to find ways of uh, engaging more and more people within the church as we gather to worship. And of course, part of this is simply related to a dynamics of size. So if you have a, a house church gathering of 25 to 50 people, that has a, a more natural ability to engage more people uh, in, in um, the community than a, a gathering of 200 or 300 people. And we've seen this in some of the times that we've uh, tried to do kind of open mic sharing uh, as a church. If we have a smaller gathering and people feel like they know each other better, they're much more likely to share stories of what God has done, prayer requests, and all sorts of other things. But if we have a larger gathering where people don't feel like they know each other as well, it's a lot harder to get people to share. It's a lot harder to have this kind of participating um, um, environment. And that's actually one of the reasons that we uh, feel that smaller groupings are so important uh, for our church. So for example, we will occasionally hold a prayer service in the evening. This is a great opportunity to gather together with a smaller grouping of people and everyone gets a chance to use their gift and to be praying together as a body of believers. This is also one of the great benefits of women's ministries and women and men's ministry events. They, they offer an opportunity for people to come together in a smaller setting to use their gifts for the good of all. And of course, I'm going to mention small groups again, because we believe that this really is a great venue uh, to, that provides a smaller, more intimate place for people to fully participate with their gifts, whether that's in prayer or in hospitality, in teaching and encouragement or the whole range of gifts. I want to encourage you, if you want to uh, feel connected to the church, if you want to feel connected in with other followers of Jesus, if you want a place to, to really use your gifts for the good of others, I really encourage you, this is one of the best venues that we have for doing that. Groups are a great way of doing that. So that's another little kind of mini promo there. Do talk to David because uh, we really are excited about uh, the potential that those have for us to, to build each other up and to encourage and strengthen each other. But I don't think that the size dynamics totally lets us off the hook here. I think we have to, to really engage this text and see where we do need to be corrected. As a church, we do need to find ways of getting the, the whole congregation involved when we gather uh, to worship. 
So for the side of us who are uh, leading and designing services, we need to work hard to be able to get the whole congregation to engage and to always have that mindset of, of building one another up. And right now our, our worship ministry has something like 20 people on it, so that's a good start. And in addition, we have a hospitality team, greeters, ushers, all these kind of things. So these people are, are using their gifts uh, for the, the good of the church. Uh, but we also need to give people more opportunities to participate in the, the gathered worship of the church. Some of you are gifted to, to lead in prayer, to, to read scripture, to share stories of what God has done uh, in your life, to encourage uh, the, uh, the entire body here. And some of you in hearing that and considering picking up a microphone and standing in front of people are uh, terrified of the prospect that there's nothing that you would like uh, less than that. And if that's how things are going to be, you're probably going to start staying home rather than coming because that wouldn't actually be building you up at all. But others of you, God has gifted you in this way. And we would love to give you opportunities to use those gifts in service of the church. And part of the problem is that we don't know all of you. We don't know all of the gifts that you have. So if you would like to participate in, in services in, in a more uh, vocal way, please come talk to me or one of the worship leaders. We'd love to, to sit down with you and talk about and that and, and give you a chance uh, to use your gifts for the good uh, of the entire church. And, and I want to highlight one way that every single one of you could do this. Um, we started a, a story team a year ago, to start trying to gather the, the stories of what God has done in the lives of our congregation, in your life, in my life. And whether or not you know it, God has worked in your life. Maybe you don't recognize that as such, but every single one of us has a story to tell. Lots of us have lots of stories to tell of how God has worked in, in surprising, in powerful ways, in little ways, in, in big ways, to show his love for us, to, to redeem us, to set us free. And one of the best ways that every single one of us can encourage the whole congregation is to be able to testify to God's grace in our lives. So I would encourage you, I know some of you, again, are terrified of standing up in front of people, but we could even tape you before a service. You don't have to stand up live like Molly, but we could tape you and then be able to show it to encourage the whole community, right? Because that's what this is really about. So we'd love to have you do that. We have forms, actually a little form that you could fill out if you go out those doors and turn to the right, it's right on the back side of this wall right there. Pick up one of those forms that a little blue banner on the top, and you can turn it into the office after you fill it out, and we'll get in contact with you. But this is just one of the ways that we're thinking of how can we encourage more people to get involved when we gather uh, to worship. Now, I don't want to let you off the hook, though. This is something that, that those who lead services need to really take charge in, but there is a way that every single one of us can apply the truth of the Scripture every single week. And it's very simple. It's this. Come as a participant, right? You're not coming as an audience member. You're not coming as an observer. You're coming to participate in worship. God has given you gifts and abilities and passions, and he has drawn you together with this church family. And so you come to actually worship, to engage in worship, and not just to watch a show being put on or just to talk with your friends or anything else. And I realize our setup here doesn't help, right? Because we've got these straight rows and they're facing one direction. We've got speakers up front and that kind of thing. And, and in our context, what that signifies to you is that you are in an audience, and an audience sits back and watches and listens. But that's not the church. Right? When, it, when the church gathers, we gather with all the giftings and the passions that God has given us to participate. We, we, are, we are coming together in this and building one another up and strengthening one another. So when, when one person leads out in prayer, the rest of us are listening attentively and, and lifting our hearts along with that person in, in praise and petition to God. 
when one person leads in Scripture, the rest of us are listening attentively to what God's Word has to say and how we can apply that in our lives. When one person is preaching, all of us are, are listening attentively, are, are weighing what is said against the truth of Scripture to see what is there that we need to change in our lives and what we need to correct uh, in, in the life of the preacher, perhaps. Uh, when, one, when the team is up here playing songs and worshiping, we don't sit back and just listen and take it in, but we lift our own voices. You don't have to be a great singer to be able to sing out the great truths of the faith, faith as we sing them together. I sit in the front row because, so that no one has to listen to my uh, off-key singing, but I can still sing out with joy because of what God has done in my life. And remember, what is the point of all of this? We come to worship God and to build up these people around us. They have become our family. God has drawn us together and we want good for them. We want to use everything that God has given us to be able to benefit the people around us. Now, our gatherings are always going to be imperfect because I'm here and you're here and we're imperfect people. We're never going to get this exactly right. But at the same time, our gatherings are an opportunity for us to come together to honor God to praise Him for what He's done, to anticipate His great work, to ask that He would work in our lives and in the lives of those that we love, those in our community. And that's what we want. We want to be a community that comes together to encourage and build up and strengthen. We want to have such an overwhelming love for God and such an overwhelming love for His people that we can't wait to gather again, to bring our gifts and everything that God has given us to build up these people around us. That's what we want. May God help us toward that. Please pray with me. God, I do thank you for your church. I thank you for what I've seen in this community of followers of Jesus. I have seen people who love you from the bottom of their hearts. They want more than anything to be obedient to you. They, they love you. You have done so much for them. And they want their whole life to be an expression of praise and worship to you. I pray that you would empower us to be able to strengthen each other. And for those, God, who, who are not yet followers of Jesus, who don't yet know what it means to, to put their faith in Jesus or to trust him or any of that, I pray that what we say and what we do would be clear, that nothing would get in the way of people hearing the great message of Jesus, that you sent your son to seek out and to save those who were apart from him, lost, hopeless, despairing. I pray that you would make us a community that's, that's filled with the light that comes from you, that we would shine out the truth of Scripture, the beauty of the gospel, and the love of the fellowship of believers every day. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.